Thank you for joining Nonprofit Cyber Center of Excellence for Cyber Insiders, a 10-part series featuring leaders from industry, academia, and government agencies. The star-studded lineup of seasoned insiders will discuss what citizens and businesses need to know about the current threat landscape, protection, and risk management strategies, innovations, and growing workforce needs. We'll post a new podcast each month. The series is brought to you by Cascade, a program funded by the U.S. Department of Defense through the California Governor's Office of Planning and Research to bolster the state's defense supply chain, cybersecurity resilience, and innovation capacity, and to support the growth of California's cybersecurity workforce. And now, here's your host, Kevin Danino. Welcome, everybody, to Cyber Insiders. I'm your host, Kevin Danino, and we are really excited today to talk about big data, AI, machine learning, and really the future of what cybersecurity is going to look like. Uh, it's a little bit of a, a smaller studio today uh, with just one guest, which is nice. We can spread our legs out here. I'm really excited to, to have Scott Zoldi, the Chief Analytics Officer at FICO. Um, here in studio with us today. Scott, great to have you. It's great being here. Scott, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background? So, I'm the Chief Analytics Officer at FICO. Uh, I've been with the firm for 21 years, and my focus has been around the application of machine learning and artificial intelligence in, to curb and, and to deal with financial crime, cybercrime, um, and compliance issues. And definitely quite a hot topic and continues to be quite the topic. But for, for a lot of our listeners that might not know some of the acronyms, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what exactly is big data, AI, or artificial intelligence, and machine learning, and how do they kind of fit into this ecosystem? Yeah, absolutely. It's a little confusing. Um, and there's a lot to it. So, so big data is essentially this concept that we have access to more data than we ne ever had before, right? And that gives us tremendous opportunity. And so, there was a, a movement more than 15 years ago to gather as much data as possible um, about all the sort of operations of, of an organization. Um, and, and that's been a, a good and bad thing. It's good because it could provide tremendous insight um, to, to organizations trying to better operationalize um, and, and to use that data. It also provides a big cyber risk, obviously, collecting a bunch of data that mm -hmm. could be valuable to, uh, to uh, criminals. So the industry then went to focus on artificial intelligence as a, a concept. And artificial intelligence is essentially machines that are programmed to make decisions with that data. Okay, so the human beings are unable to do that effectively, so we need to use programs to do that. And the final sort of version of this is, is machine learning. And machine learning is essentially a recognition of the fact that um, human beings are probably not able to program the AI appropriately. The machines themselves have to learn the patterns in that complex data. And so all three terms are kind of related, right? One is you need data to make the decision. Two is you need infrastructure to make decisions on that, which would be AI. And finally, machine learning which is the most interesting one, is where algorithms themselves learn interesting patterns that would be unknown to humans. You know, it's interesting we talk about data. Um, clearly, um, sort of the monetization of data has been in the headlines a lot lately as well. I mean, we've seen some household financial names, whether it's a, a lending club or Intuit, um, a lot of um, a lot of mergers um, in the what we're calling kind of the fintech industry, but the prevailing theme of, of all of it seems to be sort of this acquisition of of client and customer data, which you know 
even a couple of years ago, you never really heard this um, as much. And so I'm wondering, just sort of as sort of the monetization of all of this customer data, um, if that sort of ups the ante both on sort of the consumer privacy side, but then also sort of the the bad guy, good guy argument um, in terms of sort of what are we doing to kind of prevent these types of cyber attacks, knowing that this data is so, so valuable now as well. Yeah, so the the, the data is super valuable, and, and and you know, one of the areas would be like financial crime. So as an example, you know, a stolen credit card could go for fifteen to twenty dollars on on the open market. Um, your bank account, right? If you had less than two thousand um, dollars, I might pay up to a hundred dollars for account credentials, or maybe a thousand dollars for account credentials if you have um, more than fifteen thousand. So there's, it's a big business, and so there's a lot of activity associated with um, getting those account credentials, right? Which compromises um, people's uh, financial security. There's also larger things at stake, um, and some of those would be around sort of government actors and access to intellectual property that can harm. Uh, Entire you know, corporations and industries in terms of um, movement of code and intellectual property. So, the the amount of um, financial upside for f- uh, cyber criminals is huge, um, and you know they also are, are dealing with the fact that many organizations are still trying to solve this through human means, which is really a huge problem for two reasons. One is humans don't scale at the same rate as computers and, and machine learning, and then two, we all know about the the, the very big challenge we have today. With with not enough people working in the cybersecurity space to to go triage all these different events that they observe. And when we when you think about at least you know when I hear terms like artificial intelligence or machine learning and naturally sort of uh, you think of robots or ma- machines and sort of like the evil and dark side if you will uh, of this technology clearly you know you're one of the good guys right and have been working in the space for 20 plus years what can you tell us in terms of you know what's out there from a good guy standpoint and also I know you, we talked about some of the sort of black hats if you will and sort of selling of, of data, but um, how are we combating this on the good side, knowing that the that the bad side can use the same technology as well? Yeah, so it's an interesting scenario. Um, you know, on the good side, right, you know, there are more and more people focused on applications from an AI and machine learning perspective, right? So there's a sort of realization that it is almost futile to to not adopt these technologies, and so you have, you know, a range of different companies doing things with AI and machine learning today on, on the on the white hat side, um, which would be, um, for example, um, you know, technology that looks for outliers in terms of transaction patterns and IP packets to look for an intrusion. Technologies that look at trying to do a better job at firewalls from a probabilistic perspective, making a decision whether or not to block or not block, or to put a score on every event that passes the firewall um, to actually actually mapping out an entire organization and providing a score so the CISO and the board could look at that and make a decision about the readiness. So we're seeing this sort of transformation. Um, but I, I will say it's hard, right? And it's hard for a couple of reasons, right? The, the, the White Hats, the, the good guys, if you will, with AI, are, are trying to build it in, in responsible, kind of ethical ways. We don't want to build technology that could you know, stop business because it was wrong sure. about a, a certain sort of transaction. And that's in a stark um, you know, contrast to, to the black hats. And so, you know, what makes this a challenging um, arms war, if you will, in terms of these technologies is the fact that 
We have open source that makes all these machine learning technologies available to anyone. We have cloud computing that makes it very easy to, to, to build models. And then you, you have, a, you know, kind of basically three different types of black hat activity, right? You have, you know, what we call script kiddies, which are basically just being opportunistic and taking advantage of um, the fact that open source is out there. Um, you have independent crackers that, you know, are kind of freelancing, right? They, they know machine learning. They know the, the cyberspace, and they're, they'll hire themselves out. Out. Those are some of the mo most some of the most sophisticated on the same par, often with um, the the white hats, and then you have government actors, right? Which is a tremendous sort of um, investment in terms of you know uh, AI and machine learning. So they are quite a little bit. They are different. I think the white hats are still on the on the winning edge, but it. Uh, the fact that we have open source and other technology available to black hats is evening the playing field considerably. You mentioned open source, and so you know one of my first questions is relative to regulation. If in the case of machine learning and AI, if having a little bit more or a lot more regulation, if you will, um, might actually help sort of the the good side, if you will, and place more limitations on on the black hats. Um, what's your take, just in terms of where regulation plays um, in this space? So I think regulation is going to help with adoption of, of AI machine learning. Um, it probably won't slow down the ballot cats because they're, you know, they're, yeah. they're simply, um, you know, will do what they're doing anyhow in disregard for the regulation or the law. But for the for the white hats, those that are trying to get companies to adopt um, the AI machine learning, it will enable them to build it correctly and correctly meaning that it's explainable, that it's ethical, um, and that um, it's not going to have a bad experience for someone that's trying to adopt the machine learning. So, you know, as per the, the prior example, right, if we if we build a model today and it ends up stopping all traffic to um, to Kazakhstan because it believes that Kazakhstan is a high risk, right, there's plenty of legitimate traffic there, and that's a that's a bad behavior for an AI or a machine learning model. So I think regulation will help allow these models to be built at high quality. The same way that when we get in our car, right, and we turn it on, we drive down the freeway, we expect that when we hit the brake pedal, right, that the turn signal doesn't come on, right, that the brake... Uh, pedal will, will, will uh, cause the brakes to, to slow down the car. Some of this regulation is down to that level of, uh, of being prescriptive to make sure that things are built properly, and that will help with adoption, and adoption will help uh, level the, the playing field a little bit. Uh, that's good to hear, and you know, knowing sort of just your um, tenure in the in the space as well. I'm I'm wondering just when you we talk about machine learning, for example, if if you can maybe provide a parallel to a lot of the fraud that occurred in the '90s, and sort of how you adopted machine learning in the financial services space, really to combat financial fraud, and what sort of evolved since then um, in the space too. Yeah, so you know, it was interesting. If, if I look back into the the early '90s, um, the entire credit card and debit card uh, environment was a very different one. And if you think back to the '90s, right? Um, you used to have these paper slips, and mm -hmm. you'd have to sign them, and you'd roll it over a roller, and there'd be magnetic stuff under the back and ink, right? And you'd go into the dumpster, and you'd steal the receipts, and I could <laughs> commit fraud, right? It was very easy back then. And because it was so easy to be a fraudster back then, and we certainly didn't all have computers, let alone cloud-based computers, to commit the fraud, um, fraud was spiraling out of control. And the banks were responding primarily through better rules um, around what would be allowed or not allowed, and, and human beings. And the basis points of fraud were kind of spiraling out of control in the very early 90s. Um, and in fact, you know, it, it threatened the entire scheme of, of payment cards in general, right? So it was a really critical point in juncture. 
Um, at the same time, right, people are looking at um, the way that AI and machine learning was used in Wall Street and other areas in academia and said, you know, we could build a model to do a better job than, than a set of rules that are full of false positives. And that caused the, the basis points of fraud to dramatically decrease very, very rapidly. Um, and, you know, the banks at the time decided that they would all pool their data together to get the best model possible using the machine learning. And since those early days, right, the machine learning technologies in financial crime has been at the very heart of every fraud detection capability out there. So those phone calls that you know you and I likely get when you you might take do a purchase where it's maybe outside of in this case like Southern California, and we get that call is machine learning kind of behind that as well. Almost always, yeah. Okay. And it's become such a, a grounding sort of feature. And you still have humans, and you still have rules around the use of that model, right? But it is allowed. The fraud to, to stay um, curbed. Now, during the same you know twenty plus years, you know there's been plenty of advancements in the card schemes, and there's been plenty of advancements in the way fraudsters operate. Now, if we look at cyber, right? It's a very different situation. We're not. We're barely at this sort of broad adoption of AI machine learning, and we're still trying to deal with it with you know humans and rules and scenarios, which you know impact the usability of our networks, and ultimately probably mean we don't quite understand what's happening in our networks usually, uh, which means that data is probably flowing out more than we would like. Hmm. And I know you know when when you're sort of looking into these cyber attacks, et cetera, building models obviously become important, and and I know that in your world here, um, what type of model are, are being built to really detect events that can can prevent whether it's a large financial fraud transaction, et cetera, from occurring. Yeah. So the models are actually quite different than let's say you'd use in, in financial fraud. So um, one of the you know in financial fraud, what we'd use is what's called a supervised model. So I could look right. at all the fraud that occurred over the last year, and then I can build a model to to look for the same fraud. In cyber attack, each of these attacks are, are pretty unique, right? Um, and, and the devastating ones you don't ever want to see. And therefore, there's a different class of models. Um, there's two types. One is called unsupervised analytics. Unsupervised analytics says I don't know what I'm looking for. But I know, or I'm going to alert to things that look very, very abnormal, right? So if the sun come up tomorrow and it's purple, that's very um, abnormal, right? Mm -hmm. And we'd probably all notice it. And so these sort of analytics are looking for abnormalities from the normal operating status of the of the organization, um, and then prioritizing that so that people are looking at those first, and they're usually based on the behavior within that network. Um, the other class of models is one which are I think will be tremendously important to cyber moving forward, which are called um, semi-supervised models. This is really the art of where human beings and machine learning uh, models are working together, right? And if we look at, uh, you know, how chess is done today, right? It's not a human versus human. The best chess players are working in conjunction with their machine learning models mm -hmm. and the human being to get the very best results. And that's what's going to happen here, too, where the model will make suggestions, and then the analysts will look at that, they'll provide the feedback, the model will automatically adjust. And so that combination of machine learning and the, the human being is where it's going to be headed. But the majority of it today is these unsupervised models, which are fine for where we are. Um, but ultimately, we'll see this sort of integration of machine and human. So from a, just purely from an employment um, standpoint, it, it sounds like sort of the, the jobs that can kind of work within machine learning and AI, to your point, those supervised models are, are sort of a, kind of a, a, a great opportunity, if you will 
skill from a from sort of a job growth standpoint too, and just working with AI. It is. I mean, it's a, it's a huge area um, and an opportunity. So you know, the the same the, the idea of a semi supervised model is that you know we leverage the human expertise, right? Machine. There's nothing special about a machine learning model. Um, it learns from experience, and the more that we can bring kind of educated uh, people in cyber and and practitioners to to work with these machines, they'll get smarter. Uh, it's it's not going to replace them. It's simply going to adapt and weave and bob um, with respect to how cybercrime is occurring today. And you know, I think as we see, you know, within San Diego, the CCOE did a, a survey, right? And some 60% of all San Diego companies are looking to incorporate more machine learning and AI. And I think this is one of the most sensible ways to do it is to look at that human and machine interaction. Yeah, absolutely. And that and that's definitely a category here in town that you're just you're seeing a lot of growth in as well, and clearly makes sense why. Um, you know, when we when we talk about the the detection technologies and why they're so important, I mean, you guys sort of put credit scoring and creating a score for it on the consumer side, really on the map. What what tricks from from that business can kind of be transferred over into the detection side, maybe more on a corporate cybersecurity standpoint as well? Yeah, so so it's a different class of analytics, and and it's interesting. So if you look at fraud, right, we're trying to detect an event, mm-hmm. right, and stop an event, um, and so that's a you know very different than credit scoring. Credit scoring is basically we're on, you're trying to build a model to say whether or not somebody is likely to be delinquent, let's say, 12 months from now, mm-hmm. and so the industry's moving to a different sort of conversation, right? And the conversation is is actually driven by a lot of the CISO and board interactions, right? The CISO could go to a board of directors and say, I have 10,000 events today um, and versus 12,000 yesterday. But nobody really knows whether that's a big number or a small number. Is it a, you know, a relevant or irrelevant? And so, there is a now movement to basically build models to predict what is the likelihood of a particular type of organization with a typical, uh, you know, with a with a uh, with a network where we have different types of components and vulnerabilities involved, what is the likelihood that that organization would be breached in the next twelve months? And the reason why we're moving to that is that the boards themselves, right, need to be aware of this. The CISO needs some sort of measurement of it, uh, at the very least, just from an investment perspective to put more people in terms of this uh, to invest in the cybercrime problem. And so, for example, you know, what we one of the scores that we build is um, a cybersecurity score that basically ranks on a, on a regular basis. What is the likelihood of being breached in the next 12 months based on what that organization looks like to a cyber criminal looking at the outside. So broad, you know, paint with a broad brush here, you know, is is that usually an eye-opening event for for companies when they when they often see that figure and from a not being prepared standpoint, or or are they prepared? So so it's always full of drama, right? Uh-huh. I mean, because uh, it's a different way of looking at the the, the, the you know their their environment, you know. Um, very often, right, it is eye-opening, right? They'll say, well, I didn't know that I had, um, let's say, 10,000 Solaris machines that aren't um, properly patched, right? And so, there's a tremendous amount of insight there. Very often, most organizations don't understand the extent of their network. And then, if you look at the modern corporations today, right, the larger ones, they've acquired uh, and they don't they don't remember the th- what they've acquired, and it's open to the internet, and it's a vulnerability. So it's generally a really positive thing, um, you know. And a lot of organizations are using scores like this to kind of come up with a more understandable sort of measurement um, to to report on and to measure their team on, not just working events, right? That's labor. That's not necessarily uh, always changing the the outcome of of prediction of whether or not you get breached or not. And in addition to that, more and more we're seeing insurance companies looking at 
um, scores like this to basically understand and underwrite the cyber risk policies that they have for an organization. So this becomes very, uh, very much a board and a CFO conversation around the integrity of an organization. So if you look at a 10K or a 10Q and you go look at what mm -hmm. the risks are to an organization, this is one of the biggest risks, hmm. right, in terms of things getting stolen or operations being uh, impacted by cybercrime. Yeah, and, and just from a workforce standpoint, too, you know, uh, with flexibility, et cetera, you have thousands of employees oftentimes working remotely on different networks, et cetera. So the risk ante just goes up and even more so because there's just not a centralized location with a lot of these global companies as well. Agreed. Absolutely. So, in, in terms of um, knowing all these models and love what you guys are doing with the with the cybersecurity score as well, do we do we need to worry um, sort of about the the machine learning model that we we oftentimes can explain and you know then we start to get into this sort of umbrella, if you will, of of ethics, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you know a term being called ethics. AI and there's obviously a, a lot in the news on this topic, whether it's sort of self-driving um, automobile technology and how it's being utilized. We talked about sort of the, the customer data side of things. Um, can you give our listeners a little bit of a, an overview, if you will, of, of ethical AI and, and maybe where you see that topic uh, unfolding as well? Yeah. So, so ethical AI is, is is tremendously hot right now, and it's driven by regulation out of um, of Europe. Um, um, GDPR being one mm -hmm. of them, where you know it basically states that every machine learning model needs to be um, explainable um, down to the, the specific reasons why a decision was made, right? Um, and you know this is a, a really positive thing because it seems the models need to be explained, models need to be shown not to be biased, right? You need to make sure that they're stable, and you should understand when and where they should be used and when not to use a model, right? Um, and a lot of these things are not understood by many practitioners that are using AI or building AI models. And I often refer to this as the AI cowboys, right? Mm -hmm. um, because people are out there building models, right? They look at um, the performance of a model, and they think they've built it properly. But if you don't have the ability to explain and you don't understand when that model will go wrong, right? Then you may be causing as much problems hmm. deploying that model as you would, um, you know, uh, the cyber criminals that you're trying to stop. And so, this concept of ethical AI is really raising the maturity level around the predictability, the explainability, it not being biased, and having confidence that you can use this as a core part of the, the business. And it's why it's so front of mind right now for so many organizations is we're moving to more and more digital decisions. Yeah. And these digital decisions mean that many, many more business decisions will be made by the AI and computing systems that we have available to us. And if we can't explain it and we can't hold ourselves to a high level of standard, right, um, then, then we maybe need to rethink that. And so I, I see it tremendously as a, as a great topic. I talk all over the world about this. It's front of mind for so many people. But it will take you know, a lot more maturity than just opening up a, a Python you know, open source machine learning model, building it, and then you know, saying, I, I, I've solved my cyber problem. And in terms of these, are these models sort of a universal language where you know, regardless of country, et cetera, it doesn't really matter? Or are there variations of models in US, whether it's Russia, South Korea, et cetera, where 
where there's, you know, you mentioned sort of this cowboy mentality mm -hmm. is everyone kind of doing their own thing without a lot of collaboration. So fortunately, the algorithms are generally, you know, common, okay. right? Um, but I think that the awareness of where they go wrong um, is, is is varied, right? So, you know, for example, we'll see some some parts of the world use certain types of models that are more highly unstable than others and, and not recognize that explainability is important. Or, you know, they're, they're waiting for regulation to force them down that path. And so, you know, one of my roles as a chief analytics officer and just someone that practitions in this space is to educate um, everyone that I work with or I interact with around these concepts um, because they're, they're, they're important for the human good beyond just cyber, right? Um, and, uh, you know, that's what I see is a lot of variability. But um, with that said, um, the regulation that we see, you know, Brazil just released some regulation that's very similar to GDPR that talks about fairness and, and explainability and bias. And so I see the whole globe kind of recognizing this is a serious issue. Um, and, and it's not going to be the terminator that we all envision, yeah. right? But, you know, being you know, having your life impacted by a machine model um, that can't be explained is, is going to be inherently a, a, a really ch a big challenge for people when their human rights or what their expectations are. are are impacted in a way that can't be explained, and that—that's the standard being set. Hmm. Do you feel, uh, just in terms of kind of the next couple of years, that uh, that sort of regulation will start to take hold and start to maybe stifle some of the innovation, or can the two really kind of work hand in hand together um, going forward? Yeah, it's interesting. There's lots of different opinions on this, right? My my, my opinion is that the the regulation will inspire innovation and and, and proper innovation, right? Um, and and what I mean by that is if if you put regulation or constraints on a, on a on creative set of data scientists or PhDs, they're going to find a way to meet the regulation and probably build a better quality model and product that we can um, we can all leverage. Um, there is an alternate view, and the alternate view is you know there should be no regulation because that would stifle innovation, right? Um, I, I think that is short-sighted though because you know one of the things that will happen is that models will be built, mistakes will be made, right? Mm -hmm. And you see big companies making these mistakes all the time in terms of the AI model they deploy. And so I think regulation will, will long-term be the what drives innovation in this space. Otherwise, we're going to see probably more and more mistakes and, and maybe some machine learning model failures that will be so visible and painful to organizations that they may stop their adoption or slow their adoption. right? And that ultimately will be bad for the, the industry overall and good for criminals. Yeah, I, I, think that's, I think that's something just in terms of sort of understanding sort of the relationship that regulation has. We, we don't necessarily have the best track record when it comes to having regulation and innovation kind of mirroring each other as well. But to, to your point, I think the, the, the general consumer out there views AI and a lot of these models in, in very much a, a terminator, terminator mindset, if you will. And so, uh, you know, if we as a, as a group here can really kind of help translate um, what AI and machine learning can do, um, but also know that, hey, this is going to be part of your lives going forward, and it likely even more so. Um, going forward too. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the more that people are aware of it and, and understand it, right, is, is an important thing. Um, All right. Well, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And this was a, this was an awesome topic, Scott. Great to, to have you on the, the show. Um, you know, I know we have a, a couple more episodes left for all you Cyber Insider uh, listeners out there. So, Scott, pleasure having you in the studio today. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Kevin. I really and, enjoyed it. Absolutely. And look forward to, to talking more about AI and machine learning in the future. Thanks, everybody. And we'll be back in touch soon. 
The thoughts shared are those of the individual guests and do not represent iHeartRadio, CCOE, Department of Defense, Cascade, or the other participating companies and agencies.